At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Do you ever feel like the world is spinning out of control? Amidst the world's chaos and growing opposition to our faith, economic hardship, and overwhelming challenges, we can find inspiration from the story of Elijah in 1 Kings. Despite facing an angry king, severe drought, massive opposition, and depression, Elijah lived a powerful and impactful life for God. Join us for our series, Elijah, as we learn how the same God Elijah served can use us to live a life of impact for his kingdom. haven't found 1 Kings 18, I would invite you to have the text in front of you as we unpack it together this morning. And I want to begin just with a question. How are you when it comes to praying? How are you when it comes to praying? When I ask that question, here's what I know. I've been a pastor long enough to know this, that when you ask something like that, there tends to be three primary emotions that get stirred up. Stirred up. First is, most of us, when we ask the question, how are you at praying, would probably validate that prayer is important. In fact, most people's spiritual experience values some aspect of prayer. Almost every spiritual survey that you can take, prayer is one of the most common practices. It's something people see as highly important. It's regular in our culture to value prayer, to have thoughts and prayers when we go through different things. So most of us would affirm that prayer is important. The second thing is is I would guarantee that most of us, myself included in this, feel a sense of inadequacy when it comes to praying. There's there's kind of a natural like, uh, yeah, I know prayer's important and I kind of wish I was better at it, but I kind of feel this like, I'm I'm not great and sometimes I, maybe I should pray more, maybe I shouldn't, or I'm not praying the way I should. There's usually naturally a sense of inadequacy or shame in it. And the third thing is, I think most of us, though, out of that, have a desire to grow in prayer. Like, like we wish that we were more effective at it, in, in pursuing it, in engaging it, and what, what we're actually doing when it comes to pray. We know it's important, and, and we have a certain sense of what prayer should accomplish when we engage with it. We have verses like James 5.16, which reminds us that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Or another way they translate that is that the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. And yet, I would say that for many of us, we don't always see or experience that reality. That often when it comes to prayer, it's like effectiveness, power, like... That's not necessarily my normal experience. And so we kind of have this inadequacy that builds up in us. We know it's important. We feel inadequate. We desire to grow. And I think, or I'm sorry, and I'm going to assume that this morning that most of us have that kind of desire. To recognize its importance, but to grow in our effectiveness and the power in which we pursue prayer. 
And so the question I want to ask today is, how can you and I actually pray in a powerful and effective way? How can we grow in being people who experience the power and the effectiveness of prayer? Well, one of the things that can often aid in learning anything is having a helpful example. Often if you can able, are able to see someone practice what you're pursuing, if, if someone can kind of demonstrate before you what it is that you should prepare, oftentimes in any sense of learning, that's really helpful, right? Not to just know the principles, but to actually have an example of how those principles get led out. Well, thankfully, when it comes to learning how to pray in a powerful and effective way, we have a really great example. James, that verse I quoted earlier, actually gives us a very specific example. He says, the prayer of a righteous person or the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. And then in James 5, 17, he goes on to say, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So when James is trying to teach his congregation about the reality of prayer, and he wants to give them an example, he looks all the way back into the Old Testament, and he draws on the reality of one man, a prophet named Elijah. And he says to his reader, Elijah, it was just like you. But when he prayed, it was powerful and effective. He gives Elijah as an example that we can learn from. Now, we've been in this series where we've been studying the life of Elijah together as it's found in 1 Kings 17 through 19. And if you're new to our series, just to catch you up a little bit, Elijah was a prophet who ministered to the nation of Israel under the reign of King Ahab. King Ahab had led Israel into a time where they were really practicing a pluralism in their religion. He had married his wife Jezebel, who was a Phoenician princess. The Phoenicians worshipped the god Baal, the god of the storm. And when Ahab married Jezebel, he began to bring a pluralism into Israel where they began to worship Baal alongside the true god Yahweh. Elijah comes then to confront Ahab and Baal worship head on and to call Israel back to worshiping and following Yahweh alone. When we last left Elijah, he just had an epic confrontation with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, where God showed his power and his reality. And we were left realizing that idols in any form, not just Baal, but any form, are not, are not only powerless, but they're not real, and that the true God actually demonstrates his power and works to restore his people. Well, today we're going to Go from that story and zero in on a brief moment after this infamous confrontation in which we find a powerful example of Elijah and prayer. And what together we're going to see is that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And we're going to learn how we can pursue being those sorts of people. I believe when James was writing his letter and he was looking back at the life of Elijah, this is the moment that he zeroes in on to draw his lessons on how we can be effective and powerful prayers. And so this morning, there's three things I want you to see about how you and I can grow in praying in a powerful and effective way. The first thing is we need to pray in alignment with God's word. Look with me again at the text in 1 Kings 18, verse 41. 
It says, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. So after this confrontation with the prophets, where God demonstrates his power, the people then confess that they're going to follow and worship Yahweh alone, and God judges the prophets of Baal, Elijah now comes to Ahab and says, okay, now go up and eat and drink. This is actually highly symbolic. So the whole theme that you see in the confrontation with the prophets and God's demonstrates of power is actually a great work of renewal for Israel. If you remember, Elijah picks 12 stones when he builds the altar, symbolizing the restoration of the 12 tribes. God worships, or I'm sorry, God demonstrates his power and the people respond in worship saying, we're not going to continue to follow Baal. We're going to worship God alone. And so many People look and see what happens in this now call for Ahab, the leader of Israel, to go up and feast as actually a feast of covenantal renewal. If you go back to Exodus 24 on Mount Sinai, when God establishes his covenant with his people, he actually invites Aaron and the leaders and the elders to feast with him at the base of the mountain. And so when Elijah calls Ahab to come and eat, he's actually calling Ahab back to the place of covenantal renewal. That God is demonstrating and Ahab's invited now to experience this. So you get this theme of restoration. And the reason that Elijah has such confidence in this covenantal renewal is that God is going to send rain. He essentially tells Ahab, this is what's going to happen. I can hear there's a sound of the rushing of rain. Elijah, in this moment, and we see him then step into prayer. We're going to unpack that a little more in a second. But the first thing we see in Elijah is that Elijah has a certain confidence in both God's character and God's word. When God had established his temple for the people, Solomon, who was the king at the time, had actually prayed that when God would shut up the heavens, and when they wouldn't rain upon the earth, that when his people turned back to him, that he would actually bring restoration. In fact, 1 Kings 8, 35 through 36 says this, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as in inheritance. So Elijah has confidence both in God's character, that he's a God of grace, that when his people turn towards him, he will respond in grace and love, and he has confidence in God's word. So when he sees the people in an act of repentance, turning from Baal to worship in Yahweh, he goes back to the call of God, he reminds himself, and he says, rain's coming. He, he prays with a sense of confidence. Not only that, God had given the word to Elijah in, first, in verse 1 of chapter 18, where he had told him, go to Ahab because I'm going to send rain upon the land. So when Elijah comes to pray, and as we'll see his prayer in a moment, what we need to see is that his prayer is in alignment or it's rooted in God's word. He remembers what God said. He remembers who God is. And this informs both his prayer and his pursuit of prayer. One of the things I've learned about my kids over the last many years as a father is that my kid's brain is a steel trap 
for whatever words I say. Like if I make one hint, like maybe Saturday we'll go get ice cream. I always bring up ice cream because it's just my summer jam. Like I love ice cream. So, but I'll say, oh yeah, maybe Saturday. You know, my kids will ask, yeah, yeah, maybe we'll do that. Inevitably Saturday rolls around and my kids are like, hey dad, remember when you said we'd go get ice cream? I'm like, oh yeah, I did say that, didn't I? Right? And the worst is when they remember things like three months ago. Remember when? I'm like, oh, geez, yeah, I even forgot I even said that. And so they're always, oftentimes I find these moments as a father where my parents, where my kids come and they remind me of what I have said. Now, when they do, oftentimes in those moments, it's my joy to respond to their reminding of what I've said. I love ice cream. So when my kids come and say, hey, we want to go get ice cream, I'm like, oh, yeah, good call. Let's go get ice cream. Right, because it's my joy. So, but they remember my words, and it's often as those words are brought back that it enables and moves towards the reality of what they ask or desire. Oftentimes, they're reminding me of what I have said becomes the means by which things happen. This is what we're going to see, and this is one of the things that's important in the reality of prayer. God gives his people lots of promises and calls. Not only that, God delights that his people are the means by which those promises come to pass in the earth. So you're going to see Elijah pursue prayer in a moment, but that prayer comes out of the reality of his knowing and understanding of God's word and reminding God in many ways of what he has promised to do. Are you a steel trap of God's word when it comes to prayer? I think many times our prayers are ineffective and powerless because we pray more of our words than we do God's word. I've been in so many times where I've heard people pray things like, Lord, would you just be with so-and-so? I'm like, what does that mean? Like, we're so vague sometimes, even in the way we pray, and then we wonder why we're ineffective. Yet what we see here is that oftentimes one of the key practices of prayer is when we're able to rely on God's word and bring specificity to what God has said into the reality of both our prayer life and the situations in which we pray for, we begin to see the increase of our effectiveness and power. Because God delights to respond to the prayers of his people in response to what he's already promised. And so when we pray his words over situations... It brings a power and effectiveness to them. And if you want to grow in your prayer life, both individually and communally, learn to pray God's word. If you want a great place to start, just start with the book of Psalms. It's literally God's prayer book. It provides us the language and the emotion and the reality of prayer. It shapes and tunes our hearts in ways that we can pray. I've sat in enough, and I want to be careful because sometimes I can get a little angsty. I think you guys know that. But, but hear this in love. I've sat in enough prayer meetings with awkward silence where at some point I just desire, will someone just open their Bible and read it? Like if you're struggling to find the words that pray, that's okay. God's already given you the words to pray. He's given you situations and phrases and ideas and things that you can bring to the table. 
The problem is I don't think we're often effective in actually knowing the word of God in order to be able to pray the word of God. And so often that's where prayer starts. And we see that in the reality of Elijah. He is an effective and powerful prayer because he prays in alignment with God's word. The second thing we see then is that even as this informs his prayer, the second thing we see out of Elijah is that he also persists then in actually pursuing God's promise in prayer. Look what happens next in the text, right? So you you see this moment, Ahab goes up to eat and drink, and Elijah goes up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. So he takes a posture of humility in prayer before the Lord. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, excuse me, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. So Elijah is praying. He's humbled himself before the Lord, taking this posture of humility as he prays. And he's anticipating God answering his prayer. So he tells his servant, hey, go up and look and see if the rain clouds are coming. And the servant comes back and says, nope, no rain clouds. Now, I don't know about you. For, for me, in that moment, I'm likely like, well, guess my prayer didn't work. Time to move on, figure out plan B here. But that's not what Elijah does. Elijah says, go back again. And he comes back again. Still nothing. Go back again. So this repeats seven times. Now, seven is an important number in the Bible. Seven is the number of completion, right? The earth was created in six days. On the seventh day, God rested. He completed his work. And so seven often takes the number of completion. So the number is actually both true, but highly symbolic. It's to show you that Elijah was persistent in his prayers until they were completed and God was ready to move. Now, you might say, why seven times? Why? Well, at the end of the day, when it comes to prayer, we aren't God. We don't set the terms. When we look at Elijah's prayer life, what we realize is you have moments like this where he has to persist and come back and come back seven times. You have other moments in Elijah's prayer life where he just says, God send fire and God sends fire. You have other moments where he's praying, crying out to God for the resurrection of a dead, the, the widow's dead son. So if anything we see in Elijah, we see that God has his own timetable when it comes to prayer. He doesn't operate on our timetable. He operates on his timetable. And because he operates on his timetable, what we learn from Elijah is that there's times where we need to persist in prayer until our prayers are completed. You say, well, when's that? Well, when God answers. Sometimes God answers right away. Sometimes he doesn't. But perseverance and persistence are part of a dynamic prayer life. Twice Jesus taught this to his followers. In Luke 11, where he taught them how to pray, he used the illustration of someone who would get up at night and go to his friend and ask him for something. And they would say, because of his impudence, because of his willingness to come back, he's answered. Luke chapter 18, again, Jesus says to his followers, 
in verse 1, that he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. What does Jesus say? In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, though show that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So when Jesus taught his followers about prayer, he taught them to be persistent. And he uses this contrast, not because God is an unrighteous judge, but because he's a righteous judge. He actually delights to respond into your prayer. And if he doesn't respond immediately, he likely has significant purposes for that. And so Elijah recognizes God's word and God's faithfulness. And because of that, he persists in praying until he sees God bring about what he promised to bring about in this situation. God delights to work in our lives to bring his promises to bear. Now, Some of that means we need to rightly understand the promises of God in order to pray them over our situations, right? My my famous example is Philippians 4.13, everyone's famous Bible verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which you find on every athlete's shoe. That statement has nothing to do with athletics. In the biblical context, Paul's talking about being content regardless of what material possessions we have. So if you're going to claim a promise and say, God, give me the ability to dunk a basketball, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, you've misappropriated the promise. If you want to say, God, give me contentment, even though I don't feel like I have the resources I need right now, well, then God will delight to answer your prayer. So so part of the persistence and effectiveness and power of prayer is rightly understanding God's word, the promises that he says, and then apply them to your life. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, made this note. I think he gives us a great visual picture of this. He says, There is in the Bible a promise just exactly suited to your case. So mind that you find it. Did you never send for a locksmith to open a drawer because you had lost the key and could not open it? He comes with a great bunch of rusty keys, very like God's promises, which you have allowed to get rusty through not using them. And the first he tries one key, and then another, and another, till at last he gets the right one, and the treasures in your drawers are spread open before you. It is just so with the treasures of God's mercy. There is one special promise in Scripture which will fit the wards of the lock of your experience, and you must try promise after promise till at last you get the right one, and then you can say to the Lord, as Jacob did, you yourself said. We persist in understanding the promises of God, and then bringing them to bear in our lives. If you want to learn maybe a practical way to do this, let me give you some practical steps that I think we see here in Elijah. So I'm going to give you four Ps, because we already have three, and we need four more because preachers love alliterations. It's just the way we're wired, right? But look, look as Elijah goes now 
to pursue out of God's promises for the situation, note a few things that I think can be helpful for you in learning how to pray. First, place. Elijah has a place. He removes himself from the situation in the feast to go to the top of Mount Carmel to pursue God in prayer. Place is actually significantly important to how we pray. Now, we can pray all the time. Paul calls us to do that in 1 Thessalonians, to pray without ceasing. But one of the things that can dynamically help your own prayer life is where you have a designated place to meet with God. Maybe a space in your house, maybe a room, maybe it's a trail that you love to walk. But when you need a place to process and pursue God, having a place can be really key. When we first came to this, when I first came to this campus, one of the things that was on my heart originally was that we would create a space for that. And thanks to the beautiful design of our admin, Evelyn, we have a prayer room actually back here in the back corner right through that door. And it's just a room with a chair and a desk and some speakers if you need some worship music and a board if you need to write on. And we're here. If you need a place, it's a great place. Our staff uses it. But I I would encourage you, have somewhere where you can go to get before the Lord, away from the distractions of life, and to pursue him. Second, notice his posture. He adopts the posture of humility. Listen, our bodies are significantly important when it comes to prayer. They communicate. They're significantly important when it comes to how we engage God in general. This is why when we worship, we lift our hands, we bow our knees, we clap, we celebrate, right? Because our physical beings declare the reality of our spirit, and sometimes they declare what's necessary to our spirit. So Elijah gets down on his hands and knees in a place of humility to demonstrate his dependence on the Lord. What postures do you assume in prayer? How do you align your physical body in prayer towards what you are seeking God for? Sometimes it can be on our knees. Sometimes it can be standing. Sometimes it can be walking. Sometimes it can be arms outstretched or hands ready to receive or whatever it is. But the posture matters. And one of the ways we can grow in our power and effect of prayer is learning to align our posture in prayer. Third, he has a promise. He sought God's word, he know what he says, and he holds that promise. He's not just willy-nilly praying on top of Mount Carmel for whatever. God, you said you would send rain. And then he sends a servant to look for rain. And he comes back, God, you said you would send rain. Right? Like he knows what he is praying for. Sometimes one of the things that can be most helpful in the effectiveness of your prayer is just knowing what you're going to pray for. Sometimes it can take a moment. Think or jot down some notes in your head or read God's word. And then when you come, go for that specificity. Go for something that's specific. Ask God for something, not just anything. For that promise, that desire, what you want to see come to pass. And then finally, he's persistent. He's willing to return. I'll be the first to admit, in my own journey in prayer life, and I'm trying to grow in this just as much as you are, I am no perfect person when it comes to prayer. But I realize so often in my life, I am not persistent. I pray for something one time, and I move on rarely returning back to pray again and again. And yet, yet, 
There's something that we see in the life of Elijah and the teaching of Jesus that says persistence is a part of prayer and it must be necessarily practiced. So if you don't get that response right away, don't give up. Don't give up. Continue to come back. This is why prayer journaling can be really helpful to be able to write down and keep track and just ask regularly to return to consistent prayers to ask God to move. Finally, the last thing then we see as we're learning to become effective and powerful prayers from the life of Elijah is we see that we need to plan to respond to God's grace. Look at 44b. And the seventh time, right, here, here comes the prophet, or here comes the servant. Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah begins to see the answer. It's faint. Sometimes the eyes of faith only see in the distance what's about to be brought into reality. But he acts upon it, and he says, Go up to say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. So just remember, they're in a dry climate on a chariot pulled by horses. So if it starts to rain heavily, guess what's not moving? Chariots. So he says, hey, this is coming. I see it, so respond, get ready, head to Jezreel. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. So Ahab responds. And then the passage ends like this. It's a curious little phrase, but I think it's really important. And the hand of Yahweh was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So God responds, and rain comes. And once again, we see God demonstrate, again, that he's the true God, the one with true power, not Baal. He's already demonstrated it in providing for Elijah during the famine. He demonstrated on Mount Carmel when he had fire rain down, and now he demonstrates it again as he answers his promise and brings rain to the land. And Ahab responds by heading to Jezreel. But then Elijah takes off on this foot race, empowered by God, to go before him. And you're like, what is that all about? Like, well, I think it's actually significantly important. Because in Elijah's running is actually an invitation for Ahab to see how he will respond to the reality of God's power. Dale Ralph Davis has a really helpful commentary on this. Listen to what he says about this moment. He says, yet if Elijah is running before Ahab, it means that Ahab is following Elijah. Is this significant? Some would say so. The final image of the prophet racing on foot before the king on his chariot symbolizes the restoration of the proper order in Israel. King following prophet. One commentator sees it this way. That was the exact relationship Yahweh wanted at that moment. The king on the way to his residence, that is his throne, preceded by the bearer of the word of the Lord. God's word leads the way gloriously. The word of prophecy must show the king the path to follow. If these inferences are valid, then Yahweh is placing a demand upon Ahab. The king must not operate in his own autocratic way, but submit to the divine word. Royal power must seek prophetic direction. Now, you're going to have to come back next week to see how Ahab responds. But I think this passage strategically ends because it shifts the narrative in the next verse. So it's meant to linger for a moment because it's meant to force the reader to ask the question, how will you respond to the demonstration of God's grace? 
God shows his grace in the moment. He comes to Israel. He restores Israel. He even shows and calls Ahab to return back. And then he sends Elijah symbolically before him to say, now that you've seen the heirs of Baal, will you follow in my word? You see, part of the reality of prayer is that it asks the question, will I actually surrender to God as he answers the prayer that I ask him of? How long was Israel hoping, waiting, God, send rain? And then he does, but then the question's put before the king. In my provision, will you turn and continue to follow me? Will you actually walk in the way that I call you to walk? See, I think that's a key aspect of prayer. Listen, it's easy, it's easy to go to God when we're in need of things. And God loves to answer prayer. But the question is, when he does, how will we respond? How will we respond to God's grace? Will we respond with surrender? Will we follow and obey his word? Or will we say, thanks God, appreciate that? and go back to doing our own thing. You see, the challenge and reality of prayer is that as much as we often want prayer to change God, God uses prayer to change us. And the question is whether we will respond to what he desires to do in our hearts. I think sometimes God delays his prayers in answering them because he's still waiting for us to conform to his will, not just conform him to ours. And ultimately, the way we become people of effective and powerful prayer, more than anything, is by surrendering our lives to Christ and following his lead and his call. The truth of the gospel is not only has Christ covered you, brought you into the place of renewal like Israel, Not only has he taken your place, dying for your sins and mistakes, though you deserve death, he would take that upon you, upon himself as a substitute. But the truth of the gospel is Jesus rose from the dead and announced that he was now giving the very spirit of God into our hearts to lead and guide and inform our very lives. Prayer often is where we align our lives with Christ in the power of the spirit, to see him move not only in our hearts, but in our world. And so at the end of the day, prayer is an act of surrender. So you do want to become more effective in prayer? Then start with surrendering to the Lord. And that's where I want to invite us to begin. Seems silly to have a whole sermon on prayer and not take a moment to actually pray, doesn't it? So I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what's on your heart, what you bring into the room. But what I do know is God wants to meet you wherever you're at. And he wants to invite you first to the place of surrender. So as you live from that place, conforming to his will, you will continue to walk a path of growing in your own effectiveness in prayer. So I just want to invite you right now for a moment where you're at, to bow your head and close your eyes. Again, I say this all the time, but it's clarifying not to be weird, just to give you some space for a moment free of distraction. And Nate's just going to play for a second. 
And I want you to just invite, and I want to invite you to a moment of prayer. And as you do, I want to invite you to take whatever posture you need to take in this moment. Dave, can you actually bring the house down, lights down for me for a minute? Maybe you need to kneel. Maybe you need to stand. Maybe you need to just open your hands. Maybe you need to stretch them out. Maybe you need to put them on the shoulder of the person next to you and pray for them. I don't know. But wherever you're at, I just want to invite you to have a moment before the Lord to seek him in prayer and let him meet you right here in this place because he's here. So why don't we just take a moment and pray and then I'll pray for us. Father, we come this morning before you with bended knees and bended hearts together as your people declaring how in need of you we are. God, we come into this place with carrying burdens that we have no remedy for, carrying wounds that we've sought to bandage up in so many ways yet remain unhealed. We come in with needs that we feel like we're unable to meet both for ourselves and others. And so we just begin even this in this moment just in prayer confessing our inadequacy, our insufficiency our failure and our fallenness. And yet we turn to you, God, because we know that you are a God of renewal. We know that you're a God who restores. We know that you're a God who loves to demonstrate his power in our lives. And while I don't know every need in this room or everything on everyone's heart, you do. And so what I want to just ask God 
is that you would, you would meet us. That you would give us today our daily bread, the, the bread that we need to sustain us in this moment. I pray that you would provide it. That you would let us for a moment taste and see that you are good. That you would provide the faith necessary. And that as you do, God, would you continue to lead us just in surrender. God, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the faithfulness you showed thousands of years ago to Elijah, the same faithfulness that you demonstrated to James, you long to show to us today. You want to meet us here. We want to meet with you. So would you come by your spirit, minister to our hearts, even now as we just prepare to respond by worshiping together, would you use this moment to engage us in such a way that every one of us would leave here knowing we had met with the living, true God? So we just invite you to do that work now. We're desperate and dependent, seeking you alone. So we pray these things in your holy and precious name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.